Kaylee Fretz, are you a slave to Strava like many cyclists? Uh, a bit of a slave. Yeah, yes, I do. I do enjoy. I enjoy hunting the occasional KOM. Do you update your Strava when you like walk down the hall to the bathroom and back in the middle of the night? I was actually Stravaing my walks around the Tour de France this year. because yeah. it was the only thing that I was doing. Count it, KOM. Uh, I ask you these questions because our good friends at Health IQ have a new way for our listeners to get a great quote on life insurance. It involves Strava. They can upload their Strava results to prove that they are fit healthy people and get a great quote on life insurance. All you gotta do is head to healthiq.com slash velanews. You can, as you said, upload your Strava and prove that you are indeed riding your bike an awful lot. Uh, Health IQ, as listeners will probably remember, is the life insurance that caters to fit people like us, cyclists, runners, uh, vegans, people who live <laughs> healthy uh, lifestyles, and they have made a whole business out of giving life insurance to healthy people like us. So yeah, fire up the Strava machine, go on over to healthiq.com slash velonews and get a free quote. On with the show. We're back, we're back, we're back, we're back. And you know what else is back? Bike racing in Colorado. I'm Fred Dreyer, editor-in-chief of Velo News. And it's the Velo News podcast. And I am joined by Kaylee Fretz, back from the Tour de France, back from the East Coast. Where, where have you been, Kaylee? I have been all over the place. Yeah, I spent, uh, well, I covered the whole Tour de France, quite a tiring ordeal, and then a little bit of vacation to recover. But now back in Boulder, back in my happy place. Uh, you know, went by the hemp shop this morning, Ooh, and, then the, and then the more than hemp yeah, shop a little bit after that. It's true. Go by the dispensary. <laughs> uh, and then you went by the bike race, because we had the Colorado Classic in our backyard, which we are going to talk about on today's episode. We're going to talk Colorado Classic, and then we're going to do our big Vuelta España preview with Mr. Andy Hood. Talk about all the amazing storylines to follow at, you know, let's just be honest. It's the best It's the best Grand Tour of the year. It is. And, and if you look at the start list, uh, it is an absolutely stacked Oh, my God. List. I had a quick run through the route earlier. We have, well, we have a bunch of big mountain stages, a bunch of short, punchy stages, the Anglaroo, a couple super, super gnarly uh, climbs that they've never done before, and a whole pile of stages where we have absolutely no idea what's going to happen. Pilot Cat 2s, Pilot Cat 3s. It's going to be an awesome Vuelta. So yeah, Hoodie's going to be calling in a little bit later so we can chat Vuelta for a little while. It's just like that typical thing where it looks like a fairly innocuous stage and then it's just like, boom, 2Ks at like 22% to finish off the stage. Yeah, and we happen to know that the Vuelta has a, a tendency to... Uh, well, it's, it's profiles in the official roadbook sometimes don't actually show how very, very difficult some of these climbs are. So we're expecting fireworks on more than just the sort of the big mountain stages. I think there's going to be a lot of really, really interesting stages as well. Also expecting like pretty wide spectrum of fitness and readiness. Like we have these heavy hitters coming in, but like, are they fit? Are they tired? Are they still drunk from partying? We don't know. We don't know. <laughs> they might be. And, and Contador's last stand. Yep. Yeah. yeah, I'm pretty excited for that. I'm excited to see what he does his final Grand Tour. Okay, let's get onto it then. Colorado Classic was the new race launched this year to replace the old USA Pro Challenge. We were told um, not too much about this race in the lead up to it, other than it was a, a bike race that also had a rock concert. Or was it a rock concert that also had a bike race? We weren't really too sure. So we came into this race. Uh, kind of scratching our heads, wondering what the heck it was going to be. Um, some of us, myself included, laughing about it in private conversation, saying like, what the heck are these organizers doing? A four-day race that has rock concerts every day. Uh, and it turned out it was pretty cool. Uh, 
uh, it turned out to be an exciting display of bicycle competition um, that also featured like rainstorms every day, like biblical. Definitely um, some Colorado weather. Yeah, definitely some biblical uh, hail and rain. Um, and circuits, that was the big thing. Short stages, circuits, spectator-friendly courses uh, that were challenging. And you wrote about this, Kaylee, about how this innovative model for doing a bike race um, has a has a future in our sport. You think it has a future? It may, it, in fact, it may be the future. May be the future. I think that was a, a slightly bold statement, but you know, we like to pull people in and read the story. Uh, I do think that there is this is a good model looking forward. So, a little bit of background here. You know, obviously. Your average European stage race has these big, long stages. 200K. 200K plus 250K. That's a lot of time where really nothing happens. It is. It's very, they're very, very hard races. You get a lot of fatigue. There's another way to make hard races, though. In speaking with some of the riders in the Carter Classic, it was very clear that these shorter stages, and in particular because there were smaller teams, six-man teams as opposed to nine in, in something like the Tour de France, combined with these short stages meant that it was full gas all day. And I had multiple riders tell me that this particular race, despite the fact that it was not anywhere near the level of a lot of European stage races, was nonetheless one of the hardest races that they have done this season. It was also highly entertaining. Uh, we definitely had some issues with TV. Uh, the planes kept having to land yeah. because there were big storms. Bad weather. So actually watching the race, there were definitely some issues. However, uh, the racing itself was really good. If we had been able to see some of okay. this stuff, it was very, very good because it was so aggressive. Because the stages were short, because the teams were too small to truly control anything, the usual sort of, all right, we're going to start off, the first half hour is going to be hard, breakaway is going to go, and then we're going to figure it out at the end. That was thrown out the window, particularly in stages two and three. Stage two to Breck, Stage three, which went Denver up to Gap Road, which is way above Golden, and then back to Denver. Those two stages were, they were pandemonium. And the, the big teams that showed up to try to control, teams like Cannondale, they could not control. It was one of those races where in the post-race press conference, most of your questioning to the athletes is like, hey, what happened? What, ha what the heck happened? We didn't get to see any of it. I, I literally walked up to multiple riders, particularly after stage three, and had to ask that yeah. exact question. So what, did, what would you say happened out there today? Because we had <laughs> no, no idea. idea. No, I'm with you. So stage one, Colorado Springs to Colorado Springs, the riders went out from downtown Colorado Springs where there was this... Ooh, nice little quaint festival. Actually, it was like uh, cover bands playing with not too many people out there. And they went and they they did a, a challenging circuit through the Garden of the Gods. Wonderful photography. Circuit probably could have been a little been a little bit more challenging. Uh, there were some breakaways. There was. It sounded to me like the peloton raced had a bit of a timid attitude on day one, and it came back together was a bunch kick for day two though. That was really the first glimpse we saw of like an extra hard course, a short course, and just the Peloton going for it, like really going for it. So they did this uh, 6.4 mile circuit around Breckenridge that climbed from 9,000 feet up to like 10.2, like really painful. And it was a steep, awful, just like 10, 11% climb. Bunch of fans on the side of the road, people cheering, and they did it 10 times. Ouch. I had it described to me as a climbing criterium <laughs> where it was just like, felt like a crit. There was no time off. Like as soon as you summited, you were, you know, breathing out of your ears and then you had this windy, twisty descent back to town and then boom, right back on the climb. So TJ Eisenhart uh, goes on this all day breakaway and behind 
the world tour guys are just left to duke it out. And I thought the really interesting comments came. uh, It became a showdown between two good buddies, basically. Uh, Pete Stetna and Alex Howes. And Stetna's got Alex on the climb, but he's a better climber. But Howes is a better sprinter. Mm-hmm. And so Stetton is like trying to ditch Alex on the climb, but it's just a little too short for yep. him to get rid of him. Yeah, if it had been another 10 minutes, 5, 10 minutes, then I think Stetton would have had him. But as it was... Made for some really entertaining racing. Exactly, yeah. When you, when you take two riders with slightly different strengths and you sort of make them meet in the middle somewhere. So this climb was essentially, it was a little bit too long for Alex and a little bit too short for, for Pete. Uh, yeah, they, they were pretty evenly matched. And at the end of the day, duking it out and then eventually caught T.J. Eisenhart right near the end. Yeah. Uh, the next day then was the only day that was not a circuit. It was an out and back. But again, I think a lot of us looked at that stage and thought, okay, the, uh, the out and back, yes, it climbs up to 10,000 feet, but there's like 40K of descending back to town. Whoever goes off the front is totally going to get caught. And because you had smaller teams, because the f- level of fatigue was high, uh, when Sergei Tvetkov went off the front with uh, Manuel Seni, uh, they were gone. They were gonzo. <laughs> Gonskis. Yeah, a little bit of luck there, too. They had a bit of a tailwind. Uh, they had a very, very nasty storm on the way down, which sort of slowed down the peloton. Uh, I think some of those guys were a little bit more cautious back in the peloton, descending off Gap Road than uh, than Tvekvav and Seni were. But still, it was two guys against six, seven, eight dudes. I mean, I, I, I chatted with Kiel Reinen right after the finish, uh, and he was working for, for Pete for the most part. And... This is from Trek Segafredo. And Keel basically said, I don't know how we weren't catching them. We had six versus two, and we were not getting any closer. And that, that was essentially it came down to the fact that, like you said, these were much smaller teams. Each, you know, Cannondale only had six. Trek Segafredo only had six. When you pull out the team leader out of that, you're only at five guys. When you then drop a couple guys on the way up to Gap Road, you're talking about chasing with just two or three guys per team. Two lone riders actually stood a chance of winning. And at least for me... That kind of finish is much more exciting than the more predictable kind of finish oh, that, yeah. we have come to, that we have come to expect from, from most European stage races. I think that Sergei had a bit of an advantage. He's a local golden guy. He's from Moldova, but lives in Golden, mm-hmm. as you do, yeah. and uh, had some local knowledge on the descent. And apparently Manuel Seni is one of the best descenders in the entire peloton. I had a couple guys tell me that. And actually, uh, Sergei said that Seni was descending like he was a local. He was that good, even though it was wet and he had no idea what the road was. You ever descended down Golden Gate before? I have. Every time I'm on that road, it's just pickup truck city, just like honking at me. <laughs> How and much fun would that me. be with no cars? Yeah, I know. Uh, Even if it was rainy, yeah, being able to go out with no cars would have been a lot of fun. Maybe I had a red fondo. Uh, so the, the race actually went through my neighborhood where I live, and I, I was taking that day off. I was out like walking the dog, and the Peloton <laughs> came by, and my dog went nuts. And I was just like, oh, yeah, look, he's, a, he's a bike fan. But they came by, and you know, the gap was over a minute at that point. And I did the math and was thinking, ooh. I don't know if this Peloton's going to bring them back. They were going pretty good. Yeah, because so. you didn't live too far from the finish line. No. Actually. So they, only, they were only there. able to pull about, I think it was about 30, 40 seconds back in the ent- that entire chase, which speaks to the strength of the two riders up the road and also to how important it is if you want really good racing to do some of these things, which is, I think, the big one is, is decreasing team size. And we've talked about this numerous times. We've talked about this in, in, in context of Grand Tours. We've talked about it in context of shorter stage races. Forget removing radios. 
Forget removing power meters. If you want more chaos in bike races, and therefore, I think, more excitement, these small teams is the way to do it. This race proved it. Tour of Britain proved it. We've seen a whole bunch of different races take this tack, and I think it just makes for much better racing. Yeah, the Sky Train is a lot less scary when there's less of a train. <laughs> exactly. You know? <laughs> um, so the other element of this race that's worth talking about is the innovative business model. Oh, disrupting the world of bike Ooh. racing. Oh, my God. Disrupt, disrupt, disrupt. The organizers... Uh, look at the traditional model of bike racing, which is funded primarily by sponsorship, and said, well, we want to add a new revenue stream, and that's going to be ticket sales. So they tacked on these big concerts with Wilco and Death Cab for Cutie and tw actually 20 other bands that I was not aware of. And the idea was you have all these fans in the start-finish area. You sell tickets to them to come for the concert. They also come for the bike race, and you use all that revenue to pay for the overhead of the race. Uh, it's going to be a big old fat time will tell on that. Um, I talked to some people that were there nights, some, you know, some nights saying the crowds were non-existent. Other Saturday nights, night was great. Yeah. Other nights saying it was good. Yeah. I was the big, the big, big, big crowd for, I think it was death cab that night. Uh, I never, never actually made it over to the venue, but had a bunch of friends who went, uh, you know, we live here in Boulder. There were, there were lots of, lots of cyclists here in Boulder that went down to check it out and said that, yeah, you know, it was a full on concert. It was a full concert. Uh, all those people paid to get in. So fingers crossed it's a, it's a profitable venture. Um, you know, we, we always, we're always going to cheer a little bit in favor of these these races making money on these things because we want them to stick around. We, we were super bummed when the Pro Challenge went away and really excited when this race was, was announced. And it would be awesome if they did indeed find a way to make American stage racing profitable because even things like the Tour California aren't making a whole lot of money. Oh, they don't make any money. They lose Zero money. money. They're yeah. making negative money. They're making negative money. <laughs> Tour Utah makes negative money. All bike races people make negative money. It's just about finding ways to cover those costs. And so Ken Gart, the chairman, told me, well, we are hoping for a business model in which 30% is ticket revenue, 30% is sponsorship, and 30% is municipal government money coming in. I don't know if they're going to get there. I hope they get there. Um, you know, it's, yeah, I'm with you. We want bike races to survive. Um, I think the question going forward with this race will be like, how much are they sacrificing what makes a bike race a bike race in order to make it a, uh, a rock concert or some sort of money, I wouldn't say making, but money losing less <laughs> venture? Um, yeah, and there, were, you know, and there were places that could be improved. You know, we don't want to go too, too far into the weeds here, but like, I, I think that there are some things... Um, you know, the timing was still sort of traditional timing. And I, I think that that was most likely due to TV. But like, why was the why was the race finishing at 530 and then the concert starting at 830? Like if you're trying to keep people downtown and keep them engaged, you know, when, I remember racing Tulsa Tough back in the day, back when I was a, an actual bike racer. And we would literally come across the finish line at 9, 9 930 at night and ride straight into a bar. Yeah. That that should be kind of I feel like that's more what they should be looking at. Uh, granted, this, you know, this is an actual pro race and that was the quote, pro race at Tulsa Tough. Uh, but still, I think that there are a couple ways that they can make this model sort of even more fun. Uh, they can find a way to battle thunderstorms. Because yes. every stage, <laughs> I will say every stage literally finished at thunderstorm o'clock. Like Colorado <laughs> Springs, it was fine until we they went out on the final lap. And then literally it was just like... Cats and dogs living together, cast mass hysteria, <laughs> just everything, clouds opening above the start finish for the final lap. Uh, same with Breck. Denver finished, and it was like they did podium, and then it was just like, ka-crow, ka 
conscious. Yeah, I, I was actually I was stuck under a tent yeah. in the podium era, area with the entire Canada Del Dre Pack team because no one could get out because it was hailing all over the place. And then the other thing they need to figure out is they need to figure out their broadcast. And you know, let's be honest, they need to get Tour Tracker in there. Uh, I know that in some of these arrangements with NBC Sports and NBC Sports Gold, oh, you can't do Tour Tracker. I believe NBC, NBC wants to uh, retain the digital rights. But you know, we're we're bike fans. We are used to seeing our we're used to streaming our our coverage. You we know, are. I know that there's a certain degree of like, well, we need to have TV broadcast that replays two hours later to get to you know casual fans who watch it on TV. I don't know about you. I'm a hardcore fan. I watch cycling on my computer. Yeah, I, I think that uh, I think in some ways cycling fans are ahead of the game here. You know, like like Ooh. U.S. football fans are in general watching on still on watching on a big TV, and if it's not on big TV, then they're not watching it. Uh, we are very much used to seeking out the bike races that we want to watch, and we're used to watching them on a tiny screen. Flemish feed. We're ready. We're, <laughs> we are ready for the digital revolution in sports broadcasts. We are yep. prepared. So I guess, Colorado Classic, we will keep our eyes on you. We hope you don't lose too much money. We like your innovative format and uh, hope to see you next year. Yeah. We like your bike racing. Yeah. Uh, Kaylee, before we get on to this fun Welta talk, uh, when was the last time you pinned on a race number and raced your bicycle? Oh. Ooh. <laughs> it's been a <laughs> good, while, huh? Good question. It's, it's been long enough that I... Can't give you a quick answer. It's at least a couple years. Well, here's the thing. You need to go put on a race number, go race a bicycle race, and then use your super impressive finish to upload to Health IQ's website because you uh, can actually upload your race results to Health IQ to get a great quote on life insurance. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Can I upload like really, really old race results? Is that is that something I can do? Um, I think there is sort of a cutoff there. Mm -hmm. Like if you're doing like junior mountain bike from like Mount Snow. <laughs> yeah, my old junior X results from yeah, like 2000. Yeah, no. I think it has to. You could do a Fondo, you know? Oh, huh. That would work. Uh, anyway, uh, Health IQ has a very special deal out there for VeloNews podcast listeners. If you go to healthiq.com slash VeloNews, you can get a free quote on life insurance. Health IQ the company that caters to fit people like you and me, people who race bikes, do Strava, uh, eat well. Yep. And they are all about giving us a good quote on life insurance. So makes sense to me. I mean, you know, theoretically, we're fit, we're healthy, less likely to die. Uh, not as <laughs> not as fit when come back from the Tour de France. If you come back from the Tour de France, don't uh, don't go to uh, do your health IQ. Uh, wait I'm, gonna wait, I'm gonna wait a couple weeks. Yeah, do a couple yep. bike races. Yeah, definitely there. gonna wait a couple weeks. Uh, hey, let's talk to Andy Hood about the Welta. Okay, we're back, we're back, we're back. It's the Villainous Podcast, and it's time to talk a little Vuelta España. We have Andrew Hood on the line from Spain. Hoodie, where, where exactly are you in Spain right now? I am on the Spanish-French uh, border, on the Spanish side, of course. I just spent uh, four days in the French Pyrenees, and I'm in no hurry to go back to France. So I figured uh, one more night in Spain. To keep myself uh, in, keep myself sane, as they say. And, and what are you doing? Hiking around, drinking some wine, eating some good food, watching bike races. Well, we were doing lots of hiking. Just some amazing. Uh, went over the Tourmalet on the car, not on the bike. Uh, did some great hikes up in kind of these uh, amazing areas that I've gone to every summer with the Tour de France, and never really had just gone back as a tourist. And we had a great time. Uh, we went to Lourdes. You know, my wife is Spanish Catholic. Went to Lourdes, hang out there one night, and then. Uh, Went up to Gavarni, Tourmalet, and then actually spent a night on the Spanish Pyrenees side. And uh, it was really spectacular. If anybody's ever been in the Pyrenees in the summertime, 
even without the Tour de France, is well worth a visit. And you didn't run into a bunch of nerdy amateur cyclists who may or may not look like our very own Spencer Paulison uh, riding around in that area in the Haute Route? You didn't, you didn't run to Spencer? No Spencer? <laughs> we didn't see Spencer. I think he was in a different mountain range, wasn't he? Was the, is it the Pyrenees or the Alps this year? Uh, he's in the Pyrenees. He's in the Pyrenees right now, yeah. yeah. Oh, right. Okay, we, we didn't, I, I must have missed those guys. It was definitely not... Uh, did not coincide with the hot route uh, <laughs> course this year. Well, no one cares about Spencer and his oat route. Just kidding. People are listening to his daily podcast, his update. Uh, so, guys, I have a question for you. What do all of these bicycle racers have in common? Uh, Roman Bardet, Fabio Aru, Vincenzo Nibali, TJ Van Garderen, Rafael Micah, Andrew Talansky, Esteban Chavez, Adam and Simon Yates, Julian Alaphilippe, Ilner Zakharin, George Bennett, Stevie Kruzvik, Chris Froome, Warren Bargiel, Alberto Contador, and Louis Munchies. Louis Munchies. What do all these guys have in common? Uh, I'll take this one. I'll take this one. Kaylee, what do they have in common? They're all going to the Welta. They're going to the Welta. Holy cow. Did you check out that list of hitters that I just read? That was uh, maybe more impressive than the Tour de France. Way more impressive than the Tour de France. Yeah. Uh, this year's Welta is one to watch, folks. We have a stacked lineup of GC guys. We have an awesome parkour that has big mountains, punchy steep finishes, a team time trial. Mm -hmm. uh, and we have just the usual chaos that comes from the Vuelta España with riders being on all levels of different fitness and um, short, punchy, chaotic stages. So I don't know, I read Hoodie's piece this morning on velonews.com talking about this year's Vuelta. I'm excited. Who do you, who do you, how are you feeling about this race? How are you feeling about this year's Vuelta? I'm excited about the Vuelta. It's, it's always cut out. I mean, I love the Giro. But it's probably, the Giro is like the race that really gets me going, you know, because it's the first Grand Tour of the season. The Tour, to me, represents uh, pain and suffering because, uh, you know, you're in France for a month. But uh, <laughs> bad coffee, you know, just... You're giving away too many of the secrets here. You're giving... <laughs> <laughs> You're too many I think the, the croissants are good and the pan of chocolate, world class. I have to admit it there, but uh, <laughs> kind of the crab, crabby French people, <laughs> Sco crabby scolding French people. French people. <laughs> but the uh, but the Welta is, is kind of combines the best of both of those races, I think, because I mean the Welta, the Tour is the pinnacle of, of cycling. We all know that the Giro has that passion, that Italian tifosi, and the Welta is kind of uh, I think since it's moved to the third Grand Tour race of the season. I think it's just blossomed and become better every year. And I think this year, reading that list, I mean, it's, it's the best start list the Welta's ever had. And one of the things that always stands out to me about the Welta is you look at the start list and it's, it's a mixture of guys who raced the Tour de France but didn't get what they wanted and up-and-coming guys who are really trying to make a name for themselves as GC riders and the, the Giro guys, the Giro cast ups who still feel like they have something left in their legs. But this doesn't mean that all of them show up on like top, top, top fitness. No, I think the funny thing about the Vuelta is no one ever comes into the season is like, yeah, the Vuelta is my thing. I'm, I'm going for it. This is it's the, it's the purpose of my entire season. I'm really looking forward to the Vuelta. It's like it's just the ultimate backup plan. It, it, it's, it's, it's what everybody defaults to if you had a bad tour or even if you had a good tour. I mean, Chris Froome is going to do it. But if you had anything happen to you throughout the season, this is sort of the way that you are able to redeem yourself, so to speak. I mean, you know, looking, looking down this list, we do have a bunch of guys who sort of had tours de France that, that were not exactly what they were hoping for or Giro's that they were not, that were not exactly what they were hoping for. Now they get to go to the Vuelta, try to bring something good to their 2017 season. Now, Hoodie, has it always been this way? 
something tells me it hasn't always been this way, right? How, what's the history of like the Welta being not just the backup plan, but like this, uh, this big like slugfest between uh, Grand Tour favorites? I think the big difference is the fact that the big hitters are coming to the Welta after the tour. Uh, back in the day, uh, the riders would simply unplug after the Tour de France, and no one would really go to the Tour with any serious ambitions. In fact, all the big Tour favorites wouldn't even go to the Welta. Um, we saw that started to change really about five years ago, really, I think, with Team Scott. I think that they, they started to see the benefits of racing the Welta. You can go there, still get a good result, but that really fitness carries into the next season. Every year that Froome says he does the Welta, he's stronger going in to the next following season. And I think other teams have picked up on that. Get guys like Roman Bardet. You know, he's, he's, he's on a French team. He's a French rider. You know, he has no real business coming to the Welta, but he's coming here to race. Might not be racing full guns for GC, but he'll still try to honor the race, still try to win a stage. And I think that change started to happen really about five, maybe, maybe 10 years ago, because back in the day, we never saw the guys like Lance Armstrong's or the Yann Rorick's race the Welta. Yeah, I mean, in the Lance era, it was always like uh, Harass would go beat up on some tomato cans like uh, Denny Menchov and uh, some of the guys who had also raced the Giro. But it was never, it was always the, the B, the B yeah, team. It was yeah, total B, B, B team. team GC guys. Yeah. <laughs> Not so much anymore. No, it was like Lance would do the tour, and it was just like, yeah, I'm done. Call it a day. It. I, yeah, I mean, the, the, the season certainly sort of starts earlier than it used to. Uh, the guys, they tend to come into races like Tour Down Under and some of this early season stuff stronger than they did even five, six years ago. And I think that that is all part of it. You're seeing riders, they're not letting their fitness drop off as much in the offseason as they used to. And, that, and that's for better and sometimes worse. I mean, I, I just completed a podcast with uh, Dr. Andy Pruitt and Trevor, a Fast Talk podcast, which will be out in a couple of weeks. And we talked about the offseason in the way that, like, actually, some of these pros, they could actually use a bit more time off in the fall, I think. Uh, so, so maybe for the GC guys, they can make it work. They can also take some time off later in the season. Uh, you know, they're not, they're not doing the classics and things like that. But uh, the way that the season is structured these days, I think, is lending itself to more big names showing up at the Vuelta raring to go. So this year's course... Uh, it really looks similar to what we've seen in years past with just a number of stages that look innocuous enough. And then they just finish with like two K's at 20%, you know, just total stinger at the end. Um, I made a list of the stages that I have written down that are, I'm going to watch all stages of the Wilta, but these are the ones that, you know, end with either big old climb that, that basically could have the possibility to have an impact on the GC stage three, stage five, stage eight, stage nine, stage 10, 11, 12, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, and 20. I mean, you're looking. I mean, when we when we made the list of tour stages that could have a big impact on the GC, it was like five days. Yeah, maybe there, at the Vuelta, there are a grand total of four flat stages. Yeah, not including time trials. I'm talking stages that will definitely be a sprint. There are only. Four of them. Yeah, compare that to the Tour de France this year where Marcel Kittel, if he had gotten all the way in, could have potentially won seven or eight stages. Yeah, yeah. Different different model uh, in general. So, Hoodie, let's get into this. You wrote today about how this Welta builds through weeks one, two, and three to this big finale on the hated, scary climb, the Alto Angly Roo, the a- Angry Lou, as we call it. So, <laughs> Angry Lou. Angry Lou. So take us through, take us through this year's Welta. Like, uh, talk about the progression of, uh, of the weeks. Yeah, it really is almost like a slow cooker because the first week, 
we have uh, the Team Time Trial to open up, this, open up the race in Nîmes. It's only the third time that the race has actually started outside of Spain, which is kind of surprising considering how the, the Giro and both the Tour have, have extended beyond to uh, international borders. In fact, the Giro next year is starting in Israel. You know, how well does that? So for the, only the third time in the Vuelta's history is it starting outside of Spain. Uh, stage three already, boom, we're into Andorra. There's, it's not a huge mountaintop finish, but there are some very steep climbs in the last hour of racing. But things don't get real serious until the end of next weekend when we go into the uh, Charette de Cati and the Cumbre del Sol. Those two summit finales are those kind of real stinger, uphill, punchy finishes that we all love. But even those other transition days, there'll be a, that's really the only chances the sprinters will have in this Welta. And that's one thing that's changed a lot in the profile of the Welta over the last decade is that they've made the race so hard that it's really only fit for GC guys. The sprinters don't come to the Welta anymore. And now we're even seeing that the world championship guys that are preparing for the worlds for 15 years, the Welta was the world champ produced, always produced the world champion. Now the last Kiwi uh, Husky was the first one. And then Sagan did go to the Welta, but then last year did not go to the Welta. So the Welta has become so hard it's only fit really for the GC guys, climbers and stage hunters and all the sprinters and the world championship guys, they stay away. Or they drop out really early. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's the other option. The, the end of that first week is what I'm really excited about. So stage nine, this Cumbre del Sol climb. I've never personally ridden it, but we've been looking into it. It's not a hugely long climb, uh, but the fact that you're going to see grades that steep I mean, it's going to be an absolutely fantastic stage, I think, because I just I personally kind of love watching professional bike racers barely make it up climbs. Well, and when we talk about climbs that pro bike racers can barely make it up, I mean, at some point we do have to talk about Angliru. This is stage 20, comes at the end of the race. It's been featured many, 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 many times at the Vuelta. Produce some of the best YouTube clips out there. Like when I'm bored, I sometimes will just Google like old like 90s and early 2000s clips, <laughs> especially like doping era clips of guys racing up the Angliru because you're like, whoa, look at that guy. <laughs> that guy is going so hard up, up the steepest road ever um hoodie you've been up there a couple times how would you describe this climb what what's it like and why is it such a uh, decisive mountain well first of all it's not even a road it's <laughs> it's basically it's basically a, a a paved goat path that uh is, is on the side of this it's a it's kind of a spine ridge out of this limestone protrusion out of northern spain that's really unlike anywhere else uh, i've been really covering bike races because it's this thing that just sticks up out of the out of the kind of rather dense. Uh, it's almost like a rainforest there in northern Spain. Just captures all the moisture coming off the North Atlantic, and this is where they would uh, the the uh, local pastors would send their sheep up there and their goats during the uh, summer season for the pastures. And they finally somebody put up a dirt road to the top of this uh, this hump, and then somebody had the, some sick man somewhere in Spain said, "Hey." Let's pave it and have a bike race to the top of it. <laughs> I love this. Uh, I mean, it's just, it's kind of the same way. Like there are a couple of roads like this in Italy as well. Uh, a lot of them were paved for World War II. Actually, they were they're paved to get you know as a way to get artillery up to the top of these mountains and things like that. And you just look at these things and you're like, whose idea was this? Why 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 is this road? It doesn't go anywhere. There's nothing at the top of this mountain. Why would you spend the time and energy and money to pave this road? Well. 
because that way we can do awesome bike races. Yeah. So 2011, Angley Roo was the spot at which um, Bradley Wiggins, it was the undoing of Bradley Wiggins. I remember watching that well done, think he had it in the bag. And then they get to Angley Roo and he just starts pedaling squares. And, he was uh, a little over geared apparently. We yeah. found out later he had not gone with a low enough gear ratio. And that was the year in which uh, he and Chris Froome were the, uh, the, the dynamic duo, the one-two punch facing off against uh, Juan Jose Cobo, noted Ooh. Grand Tour winner Juan Jose Cobo. <laughs> <laughs> one of the greats. Everyone. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Wait, the one of the greats, Juan Jose Cobo, indeed. <laughs> Wait, I, I remember that Welta. That Welta was a funny Welta because that was back in the day when uh, Team Sky actually didn't hate the media yet. <laughs> and uh, we, were actually, we were actually inside the Team Sky bus uh, watching. Uh, it was actually a few stages later when after, after Wigo, he kind of wigged out and it was Froome and Kobo on the really final decisive uh, climb near Santander. I can't remember the name off the top of my head right now. But we were inside the team bus, and, and Froome just couldn't get rid of Kobo. Kobo was just hanging on for dear life, and Froome couldn't do it. But, hey, man, that was, that was the beginning of the Froome era, that 2011 Wilto. Yeah, and Kobo goes – he went, like, not, not that, like, far into the – he went about the midway of the climb. If I remember, it was like one of the steepest pitches and it wasn't so much of as, as like a big decisive attack as he just kind of rode away and the Peloton was within sight. And then it just kind of grew and grew and grew. And it really, it was, it wasn't so much Kobo beating those guys, but it was more like the mountain, the mountain beat Brad, Brad Wiggins. <laughs> I think like, yeah, Angleroo won Wiggins zero. In that in that uh, edition of the Welta, and then two years later, that was the point at which we saw uh, America's favorite old man Grand Tour winner Chris Horner face off against Vincenzo Nibali, and uh, that was epic day of fog, motorbikes stalling along the road, just utter chaos. Uh, Hoodie, what do you remember about that day? The uh, the the Horner the Horner day. Oh, that was that was just the greatest Welta ever. I mean, come on, having Horner. Uh riding into the red red jersey and then just hanging in there, hanging in there. And then, of course, everything on social media by then was kicking off. Everyone everyone was accusing Horner of doping. There's no way he could be 41 years old and winning the Welta Espana. Horner was going uh, freaking out. He wasn't talking to journalists anymore because I had asked him a couple of just questions saying, hey, uh, Horner, everyone on social media thinks you're doped. Uh, what do you say to that? And, uh, Solid he, question, Hoodie. Solid question. <laughs> He, he didn't like those questions, but he was having a great race. But the, the thing I remember most about that welter was the just like this year, the Angliro stage is on a Saturday, and that everyone drives down to Madrid, which is a good five, six-hour drive, on the Saturday night to race the Sunday stage. And so I saw Horner Sunday in, in, uh, in Madrid. And I said, hey, Chris, congratulations, because, uh, you know, Chris Horner loves to eat McDonald's, right? So I said uh, – Hey, Chris, did you find a, a McDonald's that was open last night after you sewed the welt up on the Angliro? And he said, oh, no, I had McDonald's the night before the Angliro. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the power, power, the McDonald's power. The power of Mickey D's. We're watching a clip here. I just remember it was, it was the fog and the chaos on the road because they only had barriers on one side of the road. So Nibali is putting in these digs, you know, because it's such a steep climb. And he's getting, you know, he gets the gap on Horner multiple times, but just couldn't keep the gap open after that because 
it just takes so much effort to even make it up that hill. And uh, Horner would just sort of, you know, he'd, he'd get dropped, but then keep the steady tempo. And when I look at this year's lineup with guys like, you know, who have that explosive ability to get gaps. So guys like Roman Bardet, Fabio Aru, and even Chris Froome, I got to think that Angliru is going to be a decisive stage, um, you know, based on the guys who are racing it this year. I mean, let's get into it. Like, who do we see as the real danger man for this year's Welta based on the course and knowing that that Angliru is coming at the end? Carlos Betancourt. <laughs> <laughs> who, do you, who do you have your eyes on? Uh, I think it's I think it's going to be I think it's going to be a start to finish sky romp. I hate to say it, guys. Oh, come on, honey. But, don't, don't 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 crush our dreams like that so quickly. <laughs> it's gonna it's, they're, they're just gonna do the sky stomp all the way from Nîmes to Madrid. It's gonna be more boring than the tour this year. Oh no, because because the only guy that was actually Kelly said that most guys don't think about the Welta, but the only guy that actually said. I'm going to be racing to win the Welter this year was Valverde. Because right. Valverde was going to going to the tour to help Nairo, and then he was going to the Welter to win. And, of course, Valverde is not there. And the other guy that might have had a chance that he had the motivation and fitness would have been Dumoulin. He's not coming. So I don't see anybody else really being able to take on Froome. Because Froome, you know, the idea of this year, Froome came into the tour a little softer to be fresher for the Welter because he finally wants to win the Welter. You know, we'll see how that plays out. But with the team they're bringing, we're seeing uh, the course of that big 40K time trial going into week three. I, I just see Froome winning this thing. Yeah, so the team is an important point here. Team Sky is showing up with a bunch of real heavy hitters. Uh, they definitely do not want a repeat of that Formigal stage where essentially Froome lost the Vuelta because of his team, because of, well, because of a lack of team that particular day. I mean, he's got, he's got Nieve with him. Uh, he'll have Christian Knees as well. Well, Poles is back uh, after that injury that kept him out of the Tour de France. He's going to have plenty of, of climbing help in this Vuelta. And I think he comes in with probably the strongest team in the race once again. Yeah, Poles is super strong right now. We saw him at uh, the Tour of Poland last week just lighten people up on the uphills got to be super motivated he was left off the tour team looking skinny as ever so yeah i i think it's a safe to say but i don't know guys so the the team that i'm intrigued by is uh orica scott you got a couple of yates go. brothers and you got esteban chavez looking to uh make his mark after being a having a pretty disappointing tour ride and you know, I'm hopeful that a team like that that has three cards to play may be able to stir up some chaos, especially when, so you know, none of these guys are real titans when it comes to uh, time trials. But when you look at a stage like the Angli Rue or you look at some of these uphill finishes, you know, Scott has these multiple cards to play. Am I, uh, am I smoking some wacky tobacco with hoping that these guys are going to be able to do something? I do. Actually, with that, that 40K ITT, uh, stage 16, that is going to put a real uh, damper on, I think, a lot of the hopes, including the hopes of the Yates brothers. Um, I, I mean, I'm looking down this list, and I really don't see anyone who's not going to lose two-plus minutes to Froome in that time trial. I mean, maybe Van Garderen could have a good TT, but the chance of him hanging on across all of these climbs is relatively low. N- Nibbly, you know, Depp Bardet, we already know how much time Bardet loses in time trials. I think that Hoodie is right. I think that Froome is going to win this race, and I think it's actually going to be on the back of that TT, which, and this is, we've discussed my general hatred of time trials in the past, but my issue with TTs these days is it allows 
someone like Chris Froome to just not do anything the entire rest of the Tour de France because he knows he's got this time in his back pocket. I think it makes the whole rest of the race a lot more boring. Hot take. Oh, I didn't know you hated time trials. I hate time trials too. Oh, wow. We all have something in common. Uh, hot take though. I think it's all going to come down to what, you know, has anyone been monitoring Chris Froome's social media feed? Like what's he been doing after the Tour de France? Has he just been like pounding wings and like barbecue or like sitting in Southern France, you know, with his feet up or has he been uh, keeping it going? We got to We got to need some Intel. On that one, hoodie. Any uh, any insight? Has he been hiking around with you up in the Pyrenees? No, I think I think he's been doing his uh, due diligence. He's been uh, training. I mean, I know he did quite a bit of uh, these criteriums. Now, this guy can make a lot of money off those things. A big guy like Froome could probably pocket another two or three hundred grand. Uh, you know, with some choice appearances at some of these post-tour criteriums, because the big money that he can draw, you know, 10, 15, 20, maybe fifty grand a pop. You know, you do enough of those, you put your kids through college, you know, right? That's what we do after the tour, right, Hoodie? We just we just go do some crits <laughs> and make two or three hundred grand. Yeah, no problem. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But yeah, I think I think Horner, I think Horner, sorry, I think uh, Froome's been doing. You know, he's he's training. He, you know, Froome never lets it go too much. I mean, I know there's a lot of chatter this year that he gained eight kilos over the winter, but I can't see. I, I never saw that. Uh, but I see him doing his work, and he wants to win the Welta. He's been three times second. He wants to win the Welta and never have to go back ever again. <laughs> so based purely off of his Instagram feed, because I, you know this is really, I think, the, the best yeah. insight into Chris Froome's life. Of course. Uh, of the last nine Instagram posts, six of them are him training. Ooh. Ooh. Sending a message mm. to those rivals. Yep. And all the ones that are not him training are from basically right at the end of the Tour de France, which includes what appears to be... Oh, yeah, the night out in Paris. So, yeah, he has not posted on Instagram all that much since the end of the Tour de France, but almost all of those posts have been him on a bicycle training. All right. So I think he's coming in serious. Well, so that's the thing. I think it's a misdirect. I think he's just – he he grammed his only training moments as sort of a curveball. <laughs> you know, it's like it's like in the Paragoods, you know. He was – he was a second away from getting dropped that entire last climb up, but none of the rivals uh, attacked because they were scared of him. So I think this is a, a similar misdirect where he's like, yeah, guys, I'm training right now, even though he's just going out and partying and having a good time. Garbage take, Fred. You think it's a garbage take? I mean, have, 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 you, have you ever met Chris Froome? <laughs> uh, he's a pretty I don't think guy. I don't think he's out partying too much. Uh, we, have, we have some other wild cards here. We have, we have our American uh, Grand Tour hopefuls, Andrew Talansky and TJ Van Garderen. Um, racing at this race. For Talansky, this is the race where he has had his best Grand Tour finish. That was fifth last year. Uh, you know, bit of a dis disappointing ride. It was just Tour de France. Uh, it suffered some illness, and he had a new newborn child in yep. the spring, too. So uh, what are we expecting to see out of Mr. Pitbull? Yeah, I mean, he came into the tour off his game, for sure. Uh, you know, we, we did a story two weeks in-ish when he really had not shown uh, shown himself much at all. He did definitely do some some good pulling for Rigoberto Uran in that last week, uh, but definitely a very quiet Tour de France, considering we had heard uh, that he that it was sort of the focus of his season. Well, we'd heard that from him. We'd heard that from him. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it, it was not hearsay. Uh, it was directly from the source. Uh, and he, he had told me previously that the Tour de France was going to be the focus of his season. Granted, this was back in the wintertime. Lots of things can happen in between then and the actual tour. But he should be able to come into into the Vuelta, I think, I think riding pretty well. And I, I see the same thing from Chavez because Chavez had, had a bit of personal tragedy happen during the Tour de France. Uh, also was never really coming in as, as, as GC favorite for his team. Uh, I think that he basically was able to ride the entire tour in preparation for the Vuelta. And I think that 
both those guys, Polanski and Chavez, are two to keep an eye on at this Vuelta. There's actually a lot of Americans in this Vuelta. We got we got Tlansky, we got TJ, uh, Chad Haga is going to be there, Larry Warbass is going to be leading his Aqua Blue team, uh, Pete Stetton is going to be there, Joe Dombrowski is going to be there. So we, we have way more Americans in this Vuelta than we had in the Tour de France where we were stuck with just three. Yeah, I think we have, what, eight Americans, Hoodie? That's right. I, I, I posted Twitter. I said nearly three times as many as the Tour de France. And someone pointed out, Hoodie, there was only 2.666 times. Sorry, man. <laughs> Solid math. Solid math. Hey, that's me. the magician. Well, we have plenty of storylines to follow uh, again. Well, one name, sorry, one name that we haven't, well, two names we haven't mentioned that I think could be some wild cards in the tour is uh, a Rowan Dennis. Ah. He was, he was going into the, uh, he was going into the Giro. He had actually great form co-leading with TJ. And of course he crashed out in the first day or two. Uh, so he's a guy, I think you know, he has that profile, right? He can, kind of hang in there like a Tom Dumoulin and then smashing the time trial. So he's making that transition to grand tour riding. So he'll want to go in there. You know, he's not going to win, but you know, if he can get a top five, I mean, the top 10 for him would be good at this point in his career. Top five would be more encouraging. And of course the other big name we haven't mentioned boys is the pistolero. Contador. That's true. How could we forget? I think we may have to have just a Contador episode of the, uh, podcast at some point, but yeah, it's true. What are you gonna? What are you expecting out of Mister uh, Pistolero hoodie? You know this guy uh, probably better than any American journalist out there. I think he's gonna go uh, guns a blazing, right? I mean, uh, I mean, he, I think he's gonna be trying to play the disruptor card to the very end. You know, it's worked well for him. I mean, he is the one guy who who actually has the intuition and the courage, and now he has obviously nothing to lose, which will make him even perhaps even more of a danger and a threat to team sky because, you know, he's hanging up his cleats, uh, at the end of this Vuelta, uh, at the end of a remarkable career, kind of a, uh, a career that's been marked by, you know, highs, personal lows, plus the controversy, the Clint Buterell doping case. So Colton door, I think will want to go out and really take something out of this, uh, Vuelta, be it, uh, a stage win, a podium, try to win the race. I mean, he's, he's only raced the Vuelta four times as one of three. So, it's a pretty good track record. And, and I, I think that if he does sense that he doesn't quite have it for the GC win, we're just going to see him try to take as many of these stages as he can. And there are plenty of options. I mean, beyond the six mountain stages, there are there are eight stages with, you know, full of cat twos, full of cat threes that are definitely not easy stages. We could see some kind of crazy contador antics. Uh, there's two stages in particular that I think that he will have Zion. Because Contador has proven that he really likes these short stages. And the Vuelta has two of them this year. It has a 129K stage to Sierra Nevada. And then a the, the stage to Anglaru is actually only 117 kilometers. So both of these, I think they have Contador written all over them. Wow, I don't know about Anglaru, man. I think that might be <laughs> a little steep. Those those old days of him dancing on the pedals. These days, he's... Uh, yeah, more, but he's going to attack like 15K like a, in. It's more like a slow shuffle. <laughs> the, the Contador dance. He's going to go, yeah, he's going to go in the first 10 minutes and just say, sayonara, suckers. And he's going to win that Anglaru stage, finish his career on a high. It's going to be awesome. I would love to see that. Um, well, as <laughs> we, as we uh, bid adieu to the audience this week, I think a good uh, exit question involves our good friend, Mr. Contador and the Vuelta. So like Hoodie said, Contador raced five, wait, four Vueltas, has won three of them. So what is your favorite Alberto Contador moment at the Vuelta over the years. 
Only at the Vuelta or uh, just Contador moment, period? Uh, we'll just do at the Vuelta for this one because I think we're going to have to do a show at some point just talking about our favorite Contador moments in general. Mm. But uh, what's your favorite Contador Vuelta moment? Ooh. Uh, I'm gonna, I'll take this one. I'll go with the Fuente Day stage ah, that's a good one. in the 2012 Vuelta when Contador came back from his ban. He was, uh, you know, angry about that situation. He wasn't actually really in top racing form because he had not been racing. I mean, his actual, his actual stop of not racing wasn't really that long because he obviously raced into 2011 and won that Giro with Larry disqualified. But he came into the, uh, back into the Welta. He was actually, uh, Joaquin Rodriguez basically had the race wrapped up. It was coming off that second rest day. And it was one of these stages opened up with some rollers that were almost unrated rollers and then hit like early cat one in the first 30 or 40 Ks. And uh, they set a trap for Perito and Contador just smashed it. And then classic tactics where they sent riders up the road and Contador attacked from pretty far away, caught up to his teammates. They dropped Rodriguez and then Contador went alone and, and uh, you know, won the World in one day. It was pretty traumatic racing. No, it was a great moment. Uh, I was going to say Puente Day, but you you took it from me, which I, I get, man. It's a good one. So I'm going to have my my uh, one I'm going to name. This is from the 2014 Vuelta a España, and this was stage 16, which I believe went to La Farapona. And what I loved, loved about this moment was this was Alberto Contador, full strength, facing off against Chris Froome, Oh, pretty much full strength. It was one of the only times we saw these two guys really go at each other. No crashes, no real excuses, and saw Contador come out on top. Contador ended up winning the uh, Welta overall, but uh, on this climb, he uh, was able to follow Chris Froome's accelerations, like pretty good, solid Chris Froome attacks, and then attack Froome and drop him and uh, win on the summit finish. And it was one of the only times we ever saw Contador be able to do that. Uh, over the course of this rivalry. So I'm going to say, yeah, 2014 Welta, on-form Contador, able to ditch Chris Froome. Just something we never really saw. Well, I appreciate you two leaving me the easiest one, (laughs) which is, I think, the Formigal stage. Uh, This was the moment, I think it was the moment where Contador kind of switched over from I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to win GC to really in his own head saying, I'm just going to try to mess shit up. And I really enjoyed that particular stage. He was the first one to go off, took two teammates with him, literally attacked from the gun uh, and, you know, didn't win the Vuelta, but took it away from, from Chris Froome in the process. Yeah, that was YOLO Contador. That was, it was, it was, that was yeah, patient zero YOLO Contador. Totally. Stage zero <laughs> YOLO Contador. Uh, I, I love, and I, I just, I've loved this about him ever since uh, that particular day. He's always had, I, I, I like it when people describe his style as swashbuckling and things like that. He's always kind of had a bit of that edge to him. But in the last year and a half, we've really seen, we've seen him just kind of go crazy, which I, I think he's really served to animate the sport. And that's why we're going to miss him so much as soon as this world is over. Um, well, we may to ha- need to have some like YOLO Contador moments of podcasting during oh, this yes. Vuelta. We'll keep a close eye out for any YOLOing 
from Mr. Contador. This yeah. Month. Well, we would love your feedback when we talked about today. You can email us at webletters at competitorgroup.com. We'll also post links to the stories we talked about today on VeloNews.com. Subscribe to the VeloNews podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. And while you're there, please leave us a comment and a rating. Become a fan of VeloNews on Facebook at facebook.com slash magazine. Follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash News. The VeloNews podcast is produced by VeloNews, which is owned by the competitor group. Thoughts and opinions expressed on the VeloNews podcast are those of the individual. And as always, we leave you with the Brooklyn Boogaloo Blah playing the Bernard Purdy Classic Soul Drums. 